Support for WFIU News comes from the IU Alumni Association, now offering IU Proud, a member program designed for recent graduates and those facing economic hardship. More information at alumni.iu.edu join. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, co-hosting with WFIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. This week, we're talking about the upcoming U.S. Supreme Court session and the decisions that the court will make. And we have two guests that are joining us today. We have Stevie Pactor with the Indiana ACLU. She's an attorney. Uh, and Steve Sanders from the IU Maurer School of Law. He's a law professor. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, and you can send us questions there. You can also send us questions for the show at um, news at indianapublicmedia.org. We're doing the show over Zoom still. We've been doing this for more than a year, but hopefully not that much longer. So you can't, uh, you can send us your questions, but you can't call in with questions. So thank you both for being here with us today. It's um, June and June is always a big month for the Supreme Court. I wanted to start with Stevie Pactor from the uh, Indiana ACLU first and then go to Steve Sanders to just ask you about um, this session of the, the court, this term of the court and what are you looking for? What cases are, are you looking for in particular that you think will have a huge impact? So Stevie, if you would start. Sure, happy to. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, one case that I'm particularly interested in and, and following closely is the Mahanoy case, Mahanoy Area School District versus BL. Um, and in that case, uh, that case involved student speech. And what are the limitations that, that we're going to allow public schools, in this case, uh, a high school, to place on student speech that happens outside of school, the school premises, school time. Um, you know, for a long time, since the, since the seminal case in this area called Tinker, uh, which was a, a Vietnam era case, we've courts have sort of assumed that um, as these, as social media and all of these other technological advancements have happened, that schools can place limitations on these speech activities that students do uh, in those forums. And, you know, I, I think it's a, a perfect time now to query whether that's a fair assumption, whether that's something we want, and whether student speech that happens outside of the school context really should be subject to any school regulation at all. Um, this is a case that's commonly referred to as the cursing cheerleader case because it involves a a, a student cheerleader who um, used the F word uh, on her personal Snapchat account, um, having to do with uh, feelings that she had about the cheer team and the school in general. Um, so that case, I think, is really interesting, has huge implications for student speech uh, in public schools across the country, and is is really quite, um, I'd say, timely, but probably overdue because this this area of the law has been ripe for needing a little update for quite a while. If you could just say a little more about that. So what did the school do to her and what's the lawsuit about? So uh, the, the student posted on her Snapchat um, a, a statement, something along the lines of um, F the school, the uh, cheerleading team, all of, um, you know, just a, a few a few choice words. Um, on her personal Snapchat account, and it was outside of school time. I believe it happened on a weekend uh, when she, you know, she was not in school. She was not using school, the school's equipment, uh, and it was not during learning time. Um, and she was suspended um, uh, and and removed from the from the cheerleading team. So she, you know, we would just generally put that in the category of subjected to discipline uh, as a result of her expressive conduct. 
So um, the question, you know, the question that the court's facing is, number one, should schools have the ability to police conduct that happens outside of the school, outside of school hours? And the assumption by, by most courts at this point has been, yes, they can, but it has to, if they do, it has to comply with the rules stated in Tinker, which generally is, was the speech disruptive of the learning environment? And if it is, then courts have held that students can be subject to discipline for that speech. So this really places squarely in front of the court, does Tinker apply to speech that happens outside of the school context? And, and it, it really makes sense that this is an issue that is so prevalent now and squarely in front of the court, because in the time of Tinker, it would have been difficult to imagine how a lot of off-campus speech would come to the attention of the school district. Um, but now, because off-campus speech is, is so uh, easily available for other people to see, parents, school administration, um, and so easily to, easy to disseminate, um, this is really, it, it's an important question that has wide-reaching impact for, for all public school students. All right, Steve Sanders? Uh, I'm uh, uh, similarly watching the uh, uh, Mahanoy, or however it's pronounced, the, the, the school district case, the cheerleader case that, that Stevie talked about. Um, the other one I'm particularly interested in is uh, called Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. This involves um, the City of Philadelphia's attempt to impose an anti-discrimination requirement on a Catholic social services agency that has a contract with the city to screen potential foster parents for children. Um, this case is interesting because it uh, is another iteration of what has becoming a long running conflict between LGBTQ rights because the basis for discrimination in this case is the uh, Catholic Social Services Agency's discrimination against married same-sex couples. It's another iteration of this ongoing conflict between LGBTQ legal equality and legal protections for that and um, claims of religious liberty, religious freedom. Uh, it's also interesting because this case could be resolved in a very narrow way uh, that it, uh, sort of limits his larger impact, or if the justices accept the invitation that they've been given by some of the litigants, it could end up potentially rewriting um, a, a good deal of the law of the free exercise clause of the Constitution as well. So again, say more about about that. So what would be the you know the the decision what what decision would they come to that would rewrite the the free expression clause well, so so the court as part of this case has been asked to reconsider a a, a precedent from uh, about 30 years ago now i think called employment division versus smith some people know this as the peyote case uh, it's a case that basically said if a what's called a neutral law of general application um, impinges on someone's exercise of religion, basically it gets a very light touch, a very sort of deferential form of review. So in that case, um, there were two public employees who said that ingesting uh, a peyote, which is a controlled substance, was part of their religious practice, was a Native American religious ritual. And the Supreme Court, in an opinion by Justice Scalia, of all people, basically said uh, well, too bad. You know that that law didn't wasn't passed to target or disadvantage any particular religion. It's a law that that uh, uh, prohibits the ingesting of a lot of potentially harmful hallucinogenic substances for good public health reasons. The fact that it happened to offend or impinge on your religious practice is not enough to invalidate it. Um, religious and social conservatives would like have wanted for a long time to get rid of that precedent in order for it to basically to, to become much more, much easier for litigants to, to challenge laws that they say impinge on their religious liberty or their religious freedom just through their normal operation. There may be no evidence that the law was actually intended to target or to uh, essentially impose a, a, a knowing disadvantage on that group, but if, if, if somebody says that complying with a general anti-discrimination law violates their religious freedom, then if Smith is overturned, that claim might get what's called strict scrutiny. 
the government's burden to justify the law would become much more difficult. So that's the, the sort of maximalist uh, potential outcome in that case. Um, we'll see if the court has the appetite for, for working a pretty fundamental change in the law of the First Amendment's free exercise clause, or as I said, whether they choose a narrower path to resolve this case. Steve, I just want to follow up with you real quick about that, because when you mentioned religious conservatives, immediately I thought of Justice Amy Coney Barrett. So can you just talk about how her as a former Hoosier, how she, her impact perhaps on this case? Well, um, you know, she, I'm not aware of whether, uh, uh, as a law professor, whether uh, Amy Coney Barrett had written anything specific, Stevie may be aware, had written anything specific about Employment Division versus Smith or the Free Exercise Clause. Her area of scholarly expertise focused more on the relationship between courts and the elected branches and separation of power concerns and so forth. Um, you know, there's a lot of speculation just because of her known personal conservative brand of Catholicism that she and her family practice. There's been a lot of assumption that she would be particularly sympathetic to religious liberty claims and to making it easier to bring such claims. I, I would say the pattern of questions that we have seen her ask in cases on the court throughout the term has not really lent itself to any particular conclusions. You know, she she seems to be an honest broker. She asks tough questions of both sides in cases. She's not somebody who really um, very often seems to tip her hand a lot. Uh, so so it, again, I think it remains to be seen. There are, you know, the, the, the people who opposed her appointment just assume that she's going to be a sure vote um, for uh, uh, religious adherence or, or advocates for religious liberty. I, I think where she comes out in this kind of first major case will tell us a lot about that. I think the, the feeling also after, after oral argument seems to be based on a, a question. So one of the questions that she asked during oral argument is that one argument that was made in this case um, was that it didn't matter what standard of review applied. Uh, and and her question in response to that was, okay, well, if it doesn't matter, if if Smith is, is just fine, as is, and you still win, why should we overrule it? And what, what would you want to replace it with? So I think what we may see there is some form of, um, you know, her giving us some feeling about how she would she would view stare decisis in a the the doctrine that says you know the supreme court will follow case law that exists uh that exists currently whenever possible um and, and that's an interesting question with her because some of her scholarly work is on the role of stare decisis and uh this so-called idea of soft stare decisis meaning maybe some things are are more apt to being overruled more quickly than others. So I, that, that was, that's, that's of interest uh, to me. What do you think, Steve? No, I, I think that's right. And, and it's been reported in the media that she has a new book contract uh, to write a book, the topic of which is all things, uh, of all things sort of why judges shouldn't allow their personal views to influence their jurisprudence. And, and so she is, um, you know, so much under the microscope on that particular issue uh, it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, I, I mean, that, that's got to be weighing on her that she is planning to write a book on this issue of how judges separate their personal views from their role as judges. And, and so every case that she's involved in is going to be seen as sort of raw material, I think, to test um, uh, her, her fidelity to that idea. How do we know when somebody is uh, acting on their personal views as opposed to their uh, their actual considered legal judgment. We're talking about the Supreme Court of this uh, in this edition of Noon Edition. So if you have questions or comments, you can send them to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We have Steve Sanders from the Maurer School of Law and Stevie Proctor, who's an Indiana ACLU attorney, joining us today. You know, both of you, this is a very general question, but it's really interesting that you're talking about, you know, basically how judges arrive at or justices arrive at decisions, you know, based on their personal viewpoints, based on 
on precedent um, and case law or based on just how they view, you know, the Constitution or how they would apply the law. And I wish you would both say a little bit more about that and about what, you know, what we're, I I think you're talking about um, how we're going to see some clues with Amy, Amy Coney Barrett, but are the other judges, have the other judges given us some viewpoints as to how they look at things sort of in general? Are they considered, you know, they're going to go one one way or another in terms of their philosophy about how they come to decisions? Steve? Well, you know, as somebody who teaches constitutional law, um, we don't want our, I don't want my students to become too cynical too early on. And so we like to teach that precedent and traditional legal reasoning and traditional legal argumentation matter in in litigation, that it's not just um, the judge's political party or what the justice ate for breakfast that morning or or, or whatever. You know, realistically, it's a complex combination of both. I think there are, frankly, some justices on the Supreme Court, I, I would say Justice Alito, not afraid to name names, who, you know, many people identify as particularly partisan, as just a sort of reliable vote for a particular set of conservative positions. Um, I I think the the better view of of how we should understand this is that justices should bring, it's fine for justices to bring frameworks for judicial decision-making, for them to bring theories of how the Constitution should be interpreted or theories of how federal statutes should be read. And if they make a faithful application of those theories, then that might lead to particular results that we call quote unquote conservative or liberal, but at least they're being principled. Justice Scalia used to like to say, look, you know, I've voted a number of times for so-called liberal outcomes on um, criminal procedure issues or flag burning cases because I followed my methodology and that's where it led me. So I think that's what we like to see. You can't imagine, you know, at the level of the Supreme Court, if something gets to the Supreme Court by definition, it is a difficult issue that probably can't be resolved just with a clear application of a legal precedent. It is not just a matter of an umpire calling balls and strikes. Some complex myth of, some complex mixture of personal philosophical commitments Uh, legal preferred frameworks for analyzing legal questions, as well as a sense of what the society is ready for and what the court's role is vis-a-vis the the, the society and the political system all has to be, uh, are are all factors that contribute to these votes that justices make. I think that's right. And and Steve, what I would add, and I'm sure you have you know, great conversations with your students about this is that our legal system only works because people respect what judges say. We, because of our, the way our legal system works and separation of powers, um, you know, they, judges have the, the power to decree things, but not necessarily the power to enforce them. So it's also very interesting to see that, that Chief Justice Roberts, also a, a Hoosier, has become known for making very careful, thoughtful decisions that clearly are aimed at maintaining the uh, integrity of the court and maintaining the public's respect in the decisions that the court makes and in how they come to those decisions. And I think that's that's equally important to keep in mind. And And Chief Justice Roberts is certainly the sort of the shining exemplar of that on the court right now, but we may very well see that from other justices as the, you know, as the makeup of the court has changed so much uh, in the past two years. I, I agree with that. I, you know, that's typically referred to as a sort of judicial statesmanship. I mean, and, and it is the role of the chief justice, especially to worry about the court's long-term credibility and, and public acceptance. But now that we have, you know, six clear conservatives on the court, um, Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts is no longer necessarily the swing vote. You know, it's possible for a five justice majority to assemble for uh, a particular result that, that he may be troubled by, but he may be outside the majority of that. So that's another interesting thing to watch. I, I generally subscribe to the, uh, the, the sort of theory that over the course of history, the Supreme Court 
rarely gets too far ahead of or behind public attitudes, long-term public opinion, uh, for exactly the reasons Stevie was talking about. Because if they do, um, they will get pulled back in some way. There will be political threats, or there will be threats of court packing, um, or, or they will be aware that uh, they're, 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 the, the public's allegiance to them is in danger. And so I think there are you know, complex but important forces that operate to keep the court from getting too far out of line with what the American people are ready for. A, a case you, you may want to you know, discuss as part of this uh, program uh, coming up next year, a big abortion case that is billed as a possibility, uh, a possible vehicle for the court to overturn Roe versus Wade. You know, th that'll be a big test of this proposition because I think right now the law of abortion that the Supreme Court has given us it's available, but it can be restricted in various ways. We don't have abortion on demand, but nor do we have a total ban on abortion. That is very consistent with kind of long-term trends and what Americans say they believe on that question and what the law should be. Yeah, I think that's that's such a good point. And, and that case that you're, you're talking about, it, it involves a, a ban on abortion out of the state of Mississippi um, at 15 weeks of pregnancy. And opinion polls of the American people overwhelmingly suggest that they support uh, women being able to obtain abortions much, much later than that, um, and that they would not support such a restriction. So that that is, it, it really is an interesting point, and, and it'll be fascinating to see what they decide to do, given that in this case, just like in Fulton, there are, there are a hundred different ways they could go uh, to to have a very narrow decision or a very very broad one. Even in Indiana, haven't they? I know they continue to pass a bunch of abortion legislation every time the legislature meets. But aren't there some that are in the courts here that they're hoping the Supreme Court picks up? Yes. Well, um, there there are. You know, I think at this point, at least four or five pending abortion cases from, you know, probably going as far back at this point as 2016 or 2017. Um, and there have been a few over the past few years where, uh, where the state has sought cert in the, in the Supreme Court. So remains to be seen with, with some of those, how, how that will shake out. It's, it's clearly a project of um, Republican conservative uh, politics and, and politicians to it, particularly in red states, to pass, you know, all sorts of different laws that are clearly and, and, and just indisputably unconstitutional, um, you know, knowing that lower courts are bound by precedent and those laws will be struck down, but you know, they keep hoping that one of these laws will be a vehicle that gets to the Supreme Court and that the Supreme Court may decide to change the law. Now you know, Mississippi succeeded in that. They they got their law, but, you know, it was struck down as the lower courts had to do, and they got it to the Supreme Court. But th this is just a, a clear sort of game of almost cat and mouse that goes on in our political system as abortion endures as such a divisive issue. And it's, it, it's, it's clear sort of what a tool this has been, because what you see when you look at these laws comparatively from state to state many of them have exactly the same language because they're drafted by organizations that sort of shop these around to conservative legislatures, uh, you know, to get them passed wherever they can. So, you know, the law that pops up in Mississippi may have the exact same language as one in Texas or Indiana or any number of other places. Yeah, I, I want to shift gears to this, um, this, uh, this voting rights legislation. I think there are a couple cases, Bronovich versus... DNC and then the Arizona Republican Party versus the DNC. Heard these called the most important voting rights cases in decades. Um, Stevie, can you explain why that is? Well, um, you know, I think it, it's an important case because we've seen over the past, I guess, decade or so, just consistent attacks on the Voting Rights Act. Um, just massive attempts to scale back the reach of the voting the Voting Rights Act, um, and that I think it ha it's particularly profound for those of us who work in the civil rights arena because the voting the Voting Rights Act I think was sort of seen uh, after it was passed as as the one that 
was that we could all sort of agree on, you know, don't, don't we all agree that this, that this is needed and has done, has done only good things. Um, And so it's, it's particularly alarming to see the pace at which um, so many voter protections have been scaled back. Uh, And so this case um, comes out of Arizona and it concerns limitations on, on the, on methods for ballot collection and for out-of-precinct voting in Arizona and under Arizona law. And the question is whether those, whether those restrictions violate a certain provision of the Roding, Voting Rights Act by denying or, or severely reducing people's right to vote and doing so in a manner that is racially discriminatory. So, um, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, oh I, I, when you're done, Stevie, I'm just gonna talk a little more about what the specific uh, laws in Arizona did. Yeah, absolutely. So the, um, th- th- this involves two laws that, that Arizona had in place. One um, required that a person's entire ballot be thrown away if they cast the vote in the wrong precinct. Basically, if they showed up to the wrong polling place and, and attempted to cast a vote or did cast a vote, their entire vote would be invalidated, not just for any races relevant to that precinct, but even for statewide and national races as well. And, and the second provision would have prevented ballots from being collected by private individuals from other private individuals and then brought to some sort of central place for to be submitted. That, that provision is apparently particularly important for Native American communities in Arizona who often lack easy access to polling places. The, 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 the tea leaves after the oral argument in that case uh, the, the, the people reading the tone of the questions and trying to intuit, you know, what the court may do, um, you know, seem to suggest that the Supreme Court would not invalidate those two provisions. The, the, the larger question underlying this case is sort of what standard should be used, what framework, what machinery should be used to analyze specific laws like this, whether or not they violate the Voting Rights Act, the Statutory Voting Rights Act. And a lot of that comes down to, do you need sort of direct evidence of a smoking gun that this was passed with the intent to disenfranchise Black voters, Hispanic voters, Native American voters? Or can you look more just at the results that the law has and and say kind of based on the results combined with a history of disadvantage that the affected group has, uh, we, we use that standard to determine whether it's a violation of the, vote, the Voting Rights Act. The, the tension in these cases is always between states claiming that they are simply looking out for the integrity of elections, the security of elections, versus people who say, essentially, those are pretextual arguments that, that sort of everyone knows that in practice, this law is going to operate to the disadvantage of a particular minority group, and we should assume that that's why it was enacted. So it, it becomes a question of kind of how skeptical do you want you know do you want to go into analyzing laws like this with an attitude of skepticism, or do you want to go into it giving the benefit of the doubt to the state that they just intended a sort of neutral law to protect the integrity of the ballot? So as I say, I, I think this case will also be important because it'll tell us something about how the court believes um, laws like this should be evaluated under the Voting Rights Act and whether it's time to change that legal methodology. And it's it's particularly important because those sort of smoking gun, uh, you know, the, the smoking gun evidence about why these restrictions are passed, it, it's, it, it's exceedingly rare um, to get that kind of evidence. So, uh, it, it happened, I think, most recently in a case out of North Carolina having to do with the drawing of, of districts. But, um, you know, most of the time, if there is some sort of discriminatory purpose behind it, that's not going to be obvious from the face of, of the legislation. So if, you know, as Steve was describing, if we don't come in with a sort of skepticism about what the real reasons are, it's it in practice, it's going to be very difficult uh, to successfully challenge any of these laws. Years ago, I mean, this sort of came up in a way, years ago, Indiana became one of the early states to pass a law requiring that you show a driver's license or some sort of state-issued ID to vote. 
and and the state defended that law say look who can argue with this this just you know makes us prove you know that you really are who you say you are before you vote and and that law was upheld both by the seventh circuit court of appeals as well as the supreme court but interestingly both uh, one of the judges from the Seventh Circuit who was involved in that case, Richard Posner, and one of the Supreme Court justices who was involved in that case, who actually wrote the opinion, John Paul Stevens, both sort of later in their careers said, you know, maybe we should have been more skeptical. We shouldn't have just assumed that the state had pure benign motives for these laws. We should have understood that these kinds of laws often are pretexts for disenfranchising particular particular groups of people. But, you know, it was too late by that point. I know Indiana is one of more than 40 states that have passed some sort of what they call election integrity laws since the 2020 election. How will the Supreme Court decision affect these laws? Steve, what do you think? Well, so, so these, you know, the, 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 uh, that, 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 encompasses a, a pretty wide category of laws, I think, that the various things that, that states are doing, some of them are vulnerable to constitutional challenges under the Equal Protection Clause or the 15th Amendment, uh, which prohibits uh, racial discrimination in voting. Some of them might be vulnerable to challenges under the First Amendment. So this, this case, um, Stevie can correct me if I'm wrong, deals uh, primarily with, again, a particular section of the Voting Rights Act uh, and, 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 and how laws are analyzed for racially discriminatory results, effect, purpose under that law. So the, the, the Arizona case, I, I think, will certainly have longer-term effects uh, and, and, and may become relevant in future legal challenges to some of these so-called ballot integrity laws. But uh, that those ballot integrity laws, I think, also implicate other federal statutes as well as constitutional provisions beyond what the Arizona case is going to decide. All right. You're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU. We're talking about the Supreme Court's very busy June month. It may not be as busy this year as it is some years, but there's still lots of great cases. We have two guests with us um, Today, we have Stevie Pachter, who's an Indiana ACLU attorney, Steve Sanders, an IU Maurer School of Law professor. You can join us on the uh, show by following us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can send us questions there, and you can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. So I'm going to really take a, a 60,000-foot view here and and ask because we did, we just did a story um, or we just did a uh, a show last week about about you know is our democracy in trouble and we had a lot of experts talking about um, about elections and how if people don't uh, don't really believe in the integrity of the elections then we're in a world of hurt and you know I think about the courts and the ju- judicial branch of people don't believe in the integrity and the wisdom of the judicial branch were sort of in the same way. You, you look at, um, at the big lie as, uh, it's been called the, the president Trump, you know, in fact, won the election when he didn't, but there were something like 47 different lawsuits and courts dismissed them almost immediately, but still some people persist in believing that, what the president tell what the former president tells them was true. So I guess the, you know, my question is, do you fear that we're in a, a situation where, you know, the institution of the judiciary is actually in any kind of peril? Steve, it's a big question. I know. I guess my, my initial thought is I, I think throughout the uh, various lawsuits and controversies in the wake of the, uh, 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 the 2020 election, the, the, the courts, both state and federal, generally acquitted themselves well. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court turned aside, which w- what was clearly a sort of absurd effort to concoct a theory that, that, that could get the issue before the U.S. Supreme Court, and they turned it down. So I, it seems to me, by and large, courts, including the Supreme Court, have been acquitting themselves pretty well when I think about this question of democracy, I often think 
frankly, not enough onus is put on the quality of our citizenry, the level of information that citizens have, the the, the, the thought and reasoning ability that they apply to these issues. And so, look, if, if a large proportion of our citizenry, based on good information and considered judgment, decides they don't believe in the integrity of the judicial process or the independence of the Supreme Court, then that's a problem. But, you know, so much of this, I think, simply comes down to knee-jerk reactions. Well, I disagree with that, so I just assume that they're, uh, uh, you know, they lack integrity. I, you know, whenever I can, I'm confronted with this issue, I want to know more about how much the person actually knows and, and whether it is a truly considered judgment that they distrust the courts, distrust the media, distrust Congress, whatever, or whether it's simply, well, I don't like what they're doing. And so, you know, I'm going to dress it up by saying I, I don't trust them. Uh, because they they don't agree with me or haven't given me the results that I want. Right. Stevie? I think another interesting facet of this is, so I I should say the caveat that, you know, I practice mostly in federal court, which is a very, um, it's a very formal place to practice. And and, uh, we practice in front of judges who, are appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, and and have life tenure. So the life tenure issue is is an interesting one that I think a lot of of people are discussing and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing for the perceived independence of the judiciary. But most most American citizens are going to have their, their touches with the judicial system through a local court of some type. Maybe they're part of the criminal legal system. Maybe it's from going through a divorce um, or some other kind of civil suit. And, and here in Indiana, our judges are elected. So, you know, for people who don't have much faith in the legal system, um, maybe because of their own interactions with it, it, it's so important to remind everyone that, that as voters, you have control over the judges that, that preside over the cases that are much most, that, that are the most likely to touch your life. But as Steve was saying, these are the these are the hardest, these are the most difficult uh, elections to have any meaningful information about. It's it is actually even for a person who does this for a living and and is in this arena like I am. It's very difficult to find meaningful information about the judges that are running for election. So, I would encourage people, you know, to think about those issues and what we can do to make that much more accessible um, to all of us, so that we can we can be responsible citizens in shaping our judiciary, especially at the state and local level. We've got a question that just came in uh, from one of our listeners. It says, we've talked about the motivation of judges to maintain neutrality and follow reliable methodology. How can we motivate other lawmakers to follow a more impartial ethics-based approach? It's it, that's a bit of a hard question to answer because I, I you know, I, I would separate out the question of ethics from the question of personal judgment. I mean, ethics implies that our elected members of the legislature, our elected members of Congress, our other elected officials shouldn't take bribes, shouldn't violate the law, shouldn't uh, vote based on the personal gain that they might get from a piece of legislation. That's ethics. But, but I think, you know, we, we, we elect public officials because, because of their personal characteristics, because we assume their viewpoints will be translated, uh, that our viewpoints will be projected through them and, and that their viewpoints and their way of viewing the world and their biases and their worldview and their character aligns with mine. You know, we want judges to be more neutral, but we, we don't expect uh, the people we elect to the General Assembly or the Congress necessarily to be neutral. We hope they apply good reasoned judgment. But, you know, those people in our political system are expected to be partisan and are expected to have particular points of view, and we vote them in or vote them out based on that. All right, I want to move on to uh, another topic, and that is the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. Are there um, cases this term that could affect that, or will those cases be uh, argued at a later date? I know it seems like um, 
there have been many cases trying to overturn that that act. Stevie, do you know? No, actually, I don't know off the top of my head. I haven't been I haven't been tracking Affordable Care Act cases this term. Okay, Steve. So, so there actually is a case. Uh, you know, like all the other cases we've discussed, it's still pending decision here in the last few weeks of the Supreme Court's term. And, and this is a case that when Amy Coney Barrett, uh, you know, how, how quickly time passes, it seems like forever ago now, when Amy Coney Barrett was nominated and facing the confirmation process, one of the key arguments made against her was, oh, she will certainly vote to overturn the Affordable Care Act in this case that the court was going to be hearing in November. Um, well, that, that case was heard. It's still pending decision. Uh, it, it basically presents this issue. When the Supreme Court upheld the, affordable, the, the individual mandate, the portion of the Affordable Care Act um, that said you, everyone is expected to buy health insurance or pay a particular penalty, the Supreme Court back in, uh, I think it was 2012, something like that, upheld that provision on the basis that it was a proper exercise of Congress's taxing power. Basically, the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate was constitutional. Well, a few years later, Congress zeroed out the penalty. So now there is still theoretically a mandate on the books that everybody has to have some form of health insurance, but it's for all practical purposes not enforceable because there's no penalty assessed by the government if you don't comply with that. So a, a group of states and political conservatives brought a case that basically said, ah, well, this now pulls the rug out from under the theory um, on which the Supreme Court previously said that this was okay. If there's no tax, if there's no penalty, then it's unconstitutional. And moreover, the big question is, can you pull out the individual mandate without the entire Affordable Care Act collapsing? In other words, the Affordable Care Act does a lot of other things. It has the uh, provision that you can't be denied coverage because of pre-existing conditions. It has the provision that, that allows people to stay on their parents' health insurance until I think age 26 or something like that. It has a lot of incentives for states to uh, uh, expand their Medicaid programs. And so once again, the, the conventional wisdom coming out of the oral argument in that case seemed to be that the justices would now strike down the individual mandate as violating the Constitution, since there is no longer a tax, so it can't be justified under Congress's uh, constitutional power to tax. But that's sort of a non-issue because, again, the individual mandate, the, the, the penalty went away anyway. There really is not a mandate anymore. The big question is whether the court will think they can do that without the entire Affordable Care Act collapsing. In other words, must they invalidate the Affordable Care Act lock, stock, and barrel if they is it so integrated with the individual mandate that you couldn't get rid of the individual mandate and still allow the rest of the law to stand? The conventional wisdom based on the tone of the justice's question seemed to be that the court would not invalidate the entire Affordable Care Act, that they, this issue of what's technically called severability, they would find that the individual mandate can be severed and the rest of the act can remain in place. It was 2012 that the Supreme Court upheld the Affordable Care Act. And just thinking back, you know, June has had some really big decisions released in the past, such as the Muslim travel ban in 2018. Um, just looking at the court at, in this June, what does that tell us about where we are as a country? Um, Steve, do you want to start? Gosh, it's such a, it's such an interesting question right now. Um, I, I find myself thinking this every every time I look through the cases and 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 think about the huge issues that are sitting before the court and the the ways in which they can impact all of our rights every time around. So I have to remind myself each each term, hey, you thought exactly the same thing last term. Um, you know, we're still gonna wake up tomorrow, no matter what happens, we're still gonna wake up tomorrow. Uh, and everything's going to be fine. Um, but but I think what I really take away from this term and, and what we're poised to see the court do um, is just this feeling of tension. The For the past two terms, I think, what I've really been struck by is this idea that there are, are 
that, that people are divided into, into separate groups on these various issues. And each, each group is shouting as loudly as they can at the other, but my rights, but what about my rights? And, and it's not always like that. Um, some, some terms are say much more, much heavier on issues like, um, you know, criminal legal issues, clarifying the scope of, you know, Fourth Amendment search and seizure law, things like that. And, and this one very much has, has this feel of tension. And that seems to, to me reflect very much where things are in our country right now and, and the dialogue that we're engaged in. So I guess I shouldn't be surprised um, that I would get the same feeling uh, from the court's term. I just hope, I hope that as it, as it turns out and as we get these opinions that maybe some of that tension can be relieved in a positive way. I, I don't disagree that the, um, you, you know, the divisions in our country, um, the, the shenanigans that are played around who gets on the Supreme Court, the talk of court packing and so forth, that all of that goes into the mix of, and contributes to anxiety about the, the sort of state of our democracy. Um, I, I guess I think, though, that the fact that we still have, I think as of this morning, it, there are 43 opinions have been issued by the court. There's still 21 left to be issued. In the, in the remaining three weeks or so of June, uh, I, I think that probably just reflects the one, the justices' work habits. Uh, you know, we're all kind of procrastinators. We all need a deadline to focus our attention, but also that the, the most difficult cases and all of the cases we've discussed today, I think, qualify as that just take time. They, they, they take time for the justices to, you know, the justice who's assigned to write the majority opinion to do the research and to draft and then drafts get shared among the justices and justices and there's a kind of political process. They decide to join or dissent from an opinion or I'll join this opinion if you make this change uh, or if you water down this kind of language, that, that takes time. And you know, it, it, it's not at all unusual for June to be the busiest month of, of the court session. I think it was 2015 when you know, they handed down the Obergefell case, which was a great sort of victory for progressives I, I think it was the same time then, like, you know, within a week, they had handed down the Shelby County case, which was a significant setback for voting rights. So, so this, this pattern of everything, you know, that's interesting coming down at the last minute is really not unusual. But, but that said, I, I, I don't disagree with Stevie about how the, you know, we can't, we can't separate the Supreme Court from our larger worries about democracy. Steve, you, you also said earlier, you think that, that the Supreme Court has been acquitting itself well um, in recent months, and I guess months would, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but Stevie, do you feel like the the Supreme Court rulings that, that you've seen in recent months since we've had, you know, we've had a lot of, been a lot of talk, a lot of discussion, a lot of debate about you know, the, the Trump nominees there, and there were about Obama nominees too. Merrick Garland didn't even get a hearing, but, um, you know, how, do you think the court has acquitted itself well? Well, I have, I have profound respect for judges in our system and Supreme Court justices in particular. They're under enormous pressure. They're doing something of immense importance um, and, you know, even when I disagree with a court's decision, I, I still have tremendous respect for those making those decisions. And, and I'll say that I haven't, nothing out of this term has, has particularly surprised me, I, I guess. Um, and it's also helpful to keep in mind that, um, that a really large number of the Supreme Court's cases are resolved on a 9-0 basis. So there's there's a lot of agreement, and there are many more cases that that go completely unnoticed um, to to anyone but those really in the weeds about whatever issue they might be deciding. So, you know, sitting here in my position as a litigant who may one day find myself in in front of that court, I have no qualms whatsoever with that thought. I mean, aside from the the vomitorium, which is the colloquial term for the lawyer's bathroom that they use before oral argument. Um, I, you know, I, I, I have, I have every confidence uh, that our judicial system can, can weather all of these storms. 
We have a quick question that's come in. Uh, I don't know if it's quick, but if, from Owen Johnson, if you could go back to the cheerleader question, if the court rules in her favor, might it limit its decision to opinions so that repeating lies such as there was no insurrection at the Capitol might still be off limits? Steve? Well, Steve, go ahead. Steve, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I think there are, there are multiple ways that the court could go about this. But um, at the end of the day, a, a student is never going to have greater First Amendment rights than, than I would, than a, a member of the general public. So there's all kinds of speech. Uh, there's all kinds of speech that's not protected. And all of that speech would remain unprotected. Um, and then and if the court decides, okay, well, off off campus speech can be can be policed, then the court's going to have to figure out where it's going to draw that line and how it's going to police it. And it can either use the Tinker standard, um, disruptive to the learning environment, which could include statements that are true or statements that are untrue, um, or or it would come up with a different standard, perhaps one that provides more. Uh, freedom and expression for those outside of school hours than what would what would apply inside school hours. Um, but really, I think the the first question, the answer to the first question uh, of whether off campus speech can be policed at all is going to be the one that sets the court on whatever whatever course it will take. Yeah, there are, you know, there are cases that decide substantively what is and is not protected by the First Amendment. Are, are lies of their expressions of opinion still protected by the First Amendment? Are fighting words protected by the First Amendment? So, so this case really doesn't present that kind of question, what's in bounds and what's out of bounds. It, it really is about, as, as Stevie very well explained, because this is an AC, a case brought by the ACLU and they've done a terrific job litigating it. This is about, you know, a, a what is the zone where the First Amendment applies, and 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 where uh, that there could be some restriction on a first on on, on, on First Amendment rights? Uh, it it really is a, a, about the power of schools to reach out and claim, well, this affects the school in some way, and so the school can discipline it. Now, whatever discipline the school applies, still can't violate other parts of the First Amendment. But the litigants, represented by the ACLU, basically say this is just out of bounds for the school to care about, period. All right. That's all we have time for today. I really want to thank both of you, Stevie, Stevie Pachter from the Indiana ACLU and Steve Sanders from the IU Maurer School of Law. Thanks uh, for being here. It's been a great conversation. I also want to thank my co-host, Sarah Whitmire, producer Benta Boutier, and engineer John Bailey. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition.